and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, coming back to the show, my buddy, my pal, Mr. John Doe from X, The Knitters, from tons of amazing collaborations. He played in The Randoms, you know, like The Randoms. Dangerous number one. More on that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned out a punk pod, sorry, turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and the guest booker extraordinaire, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, support the show by uh, telling all your friends about it or subscribing to it or rating it where you're listening to it on or heading over to turnedoutapunk.com and grabbing a t-shirt and thank you to everyone that does support this podcast. It is very much appreciated. Um, I play in a band. We're called fucked up. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc on the internet show dates and whatnot. We got some shows announced for Europe in the summer. We're coming to the East coast in the summer and uh, yeah, grab tickets, come say hello. We'll meet in person. It'll be fun. Uh, and that is that. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, John Doe is back to have another chat. John's someone that I've met and interviewed now a few times, actually, for a few different things. But this is his part two, an official part two. These are rare. People get up on me for not having part twos very often. But, you know, it's John Doe from X. you got to have him back for another conversation. John has a brand new, fantastic solo record, which will be dropping this week, this week on the uh, Great Fat Possum Records. The album is called Foreign Land, and it is a concept record taking place in sort of the mid-19th century. There's all sorts of great characters and all sorts of amazing guests kind of, you know, making up some of these characters on this thing. Uh, Yeah, really, really cool record. And once again, it's coming out this week. If you're listening to this when this record, when the story, when this podcast dropped, and if you're listening to it after the fact, well, it's probably already out. So check it out. It'll be on all your streaming services and in stores and on all the formats uh, uh, as of May 20th. So there, decide where you're listening to this on which side of May 20th, and and judge yourself accordingly. Uh, I, we talk about all sorts of cool stuff on this episode and, and some, uh, some sad stuff too, but you will hear all that in one second. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Here is John Doe from X on Turned Out a Punk. John, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Good to be here. Good to be here. Well, I was just thinking, actually, like it was all those years ago at Coachella that I think I got to meet you for the very first time when we played together. Yes. And and now here we are, uh, many, many Coachella weekends away, getting to talk again. Yes, we didn't go to Coachella this time, but that's okay. <laughs> no. I, I don't think they're ever <laughs> inviting me back. I think you're you're probably going to be invited nope, back. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. They, they, they want the youngsters nowadays, and, and, and that's what they'll get. I, I noticed a few pictures that I've seen. A lot of S and M clothing. Uh, S and M is back and 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 bold. It's back. It's back. Like nothing. Nothing stays gone forever, right? Like no. everything has to come back eventually. Yes. Yes. Very well, nice. That, that's the thing about this uh, 
you know, for me watching the Coachella coverage is that like, I feel like, uh, you know, eventually, you, you know, everyone ages out of it. And when you age out of it, it just like, you feel like you did your time. And like, I served my time. Now I can move on. <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to find out last time that I didn't ask you about, were you a fan or had you heard of George uh, Brigman in Baltimore? He did that album Jungle Rot in 74. That's kind of like weirdly proto-punk. And then did a band called Split around 77. So I guess you're kind of gone by that. Point. I was. Uh, no, I don't recall. It doesn't doesn't sound familiar. It, it's fantastic. Right? Really? It got reissued, I think, by uh light in the attic maybe a couple yeah. years ago uh but just like you know once again like that energy i think we talked about it last time like with with john waters that you have in that city in that area of baltimore where it is such like an arty town and still an arty yes. town yeah and and you said it's brinkman brigman oh brigman fantastic record though like really kind of like stooges kind of damaged but you know on his own kind of path too weird well it's a tough town it is a tough it town. Is a, it's a tough town but it's a town that's still like you know maybe it's because of the toughness where you have almost like this consistent uh need to be free you know and let your freak flag fly yep yeah for sure because i mean nobody cares mm-hmm you can't, you know, you can't put on airs in Baltimore because people will just cut you down. They'll say, oh, wait a minute. Do you still live here? Right. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's something that's like, uh, you know, like uh, freeing about not having a music industry in a town. Like I think Toronto and, and Los Angeles is probably, I know like this, and obviously New York, where you have like sort of this looming presence of potential success there. And so yes. it's not going to change the way you do things, but it might, it's always there. Well, for us, it, it just pissed us off because it, it, and, and gave us fuel for, for being that much more, uh, reactionary and, and, uh, contrary because all the beautiful people were there, you know, but we couldn't share. It's like, uh, no, sorry, you can't, you can't play. You can't play in our game. It's like, who wants to? You suck anyway. Goodbye. And eventually, though, it does kind of get torn down, though, right? Because there are, you know, yourselves, the Go-Go's and the Dickies that do kind of break mm -hmm. through and and find find space, make space, you know, that, that, you know, last for bands like myself all these years later. Yes. Well, I mean, we documented that in those in those punk rock books and and that was uh rewarding because we i felt like we got to tell the story a little bit fuller and a little bit better but um yeah we didn't care i mean we we were you know that they could have paid us to to get in their game but we wouldn't have changed anything and and that was sort of the hope i think was that was that we would be able to you know join the periphery on our own terms and we sort of did you know but um that yes there is a lot of influence that got spread around and and um yeah they i mean i didn't shed one tiny tear when all those record companies finally failed or got you know absorbed by interscope or whatever happened to them because they fucked themselves you know especially during 
you know, the, the beginning of, of file sharing and, and all that stuff, you know, they, they kept saying, Oh no, this, you know, this digital thing, it'll, it'll, you know, the virtual thing, it'll never work. You know, I'm just like, okay, good. <laughs> I, I did a dance on, you know, we all breathed the sigh of relief or happiness because we never wanted to be part of their, you know, stupid machine anyway. It's well, terrible. it's kind of like, you know, bands like yourselves. And then obviously, you know, years down the line, post Nirvana, uh, you know, the fabled kind of post Nirvana era, the alternative yes. era, there, yeah. there is another lane that opens up, you know, like the sort of like working band lane, which, yes. you know, you don't really need the machine to be in. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And, and we, I don't know if we benefited by that, but they sure benefited, benefited by all the hard work that uh, SST and, and the pioneers did in creating that, um, that network, you know, if it wasn't for all, for all of us in the punk rock world, and then, you know, the kind of indie rock world that came out of the East coast, Boston and stuff like that, Pixies and, and so forth. It wasn't for all that, uh, college radio groundwork that happened. None of the stuff from Seattle would have had a prayer, you know, it would have just come and gone like everything else, but there was a whole network set up by that point. Rollins goes into that pretty pretty extensively in uh in one of those books i can't i think it was the second one. Second one yeah <coughs> yeah <clears throat> it well it's interesting to kind of like look at especially when you talk to people from the west coast in, in particular people from i mean california when i say the west coast but i mean yeah in particular people from berkeley about where they kind of think nirvana's success factored into what happened for green day and those types of bands and they're like it wasn't really oh, a sure. factor well they well they but they they credit more faith no more and they say that like you know, they, they were like, you're saying that there was already this network that those bands were able to tap yeah, into true. that Nirvana yeah, was also true. kind of tapping into. Yeah. Yeah. True enough. True enough. When you did that first tour for the danger house single, when you went and played three shows in New York that you talk about in the first book, uh, yeah. how did you book those shows? Were you just like literally calling up maxes and CBGBs or did you have friends out there connections from when you went and visited earlier? Uh, no, Exine's sister lived in New York. And she was, she was on the scene and everyone loved her because she was adorable and, and really smart and a, a good businesswoman and everything like that. And so she had friends and she booked us. Who'd you play with out there? Do you remember? Was it just kind of like your own shows or were there other bands you were playing with? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I assume that there was somebody else playing, but uh, I don't remember. By that point, was there like, kind of like, cause you know, you talk about once again in the book, I think it's even in the same chapter going to New York in, in 75, I believe. And just talking about how, like you went and saw those bands at CBGBs and you saw like the talking heads, but by the time you're playing there in X, was it already kind of like your, your focus had shifted to the scene that was more kind of around you at that point? Oh, for sure. I mean, that was, uh, I think we went there in 78. Um, so we were well on our way we probably had written most of the songs for both los angeles and wild gift well and I, I say most i mean we probably had a you know 15 to yeah probably 15 plus songs mm -hmm. so yeah we were totally focused on the west coast and and uh but we had but a lot of the bands from new york had, had played the whiskey and starwood and things like that and them and the damned and i think devo was just starting to play uh, in LA in 78. 
You mentioned like the fact that Wild Gift and Los Angeles were kind of written around the same time, or like the bulk of them were written together. I find that so fascinating because they are such different sounding records. But was it like, you know, how much of Wild Gift is kind of done by that point? Like, because I think, I don't know if it's in the book or somewhere else, I heard you mention how it was, it was, you know, the songs were decided upon on which records would be on, which songs would be on Los Angeles kind of as you were going into recording. Um, yeah, I, I credit Ray for that, Raymond Zarek. Because we, songs like We're Desperate, Adult Books, uh, Year One, I'm Coming Over, um, probably not House I Call Home or White Girl, uh, but Blue Spark was written when we recorded Los Angeles. Um, but Ray kind of picked the songs that we were going to focus on. Were you a Doors fan? Uh, like prior oh, to meeting huge, him? huge Doors fan. I mean, they, they came out when I was, uh, 15 or 16 and God, who didn't want to, I wanted to be Jim Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a, he is a great, he, there was some, there's some pretense for sure, but I don't think he took himself, you know, as a human when he was, you know, just being average Jim. I don't, I th- I don't know if he did take himself all that seriously as an artist. He took himself very seriously, but he was a great writer. I mean, he had a, a whole uh, method and, and a lot of economy and, and, and worlds that he inhabited that were familiar. And, and it was, you know, he had a, a whole, yeah, a whole culture and world that he, that he lived in. Yeah. One thing I kind of find interesting in doing this show is how geography factors into the way people take up artists or look at different musicians. And once again, right. when you talk to people from, you know, what the particularly California about the doors, it, it's almost like Jim Morrison is Iggy pop. Like that was the proto punk inspiration for a lot of people. Yeah. He was, he was dark. He believed in the, in, um, the destruction of the world and, and, uh, how people are, uh, unpredictable and vain and, and, uh, frightening and and uh i mean that's why they didn't really fit into the whole flower power world you know they were more interested in Hal and wolf than or john lee hooker than they were in um you know peace and love was there any distrust of uh ray when you first met him or did you kind of connect with him as an artist more than looking at him as being someone that's kind of come out of this rock machine at that point well they did but they they joined it on their own terms. I mean, it's, it's not their fault that they were really talented to, you know, and able to, to write hit songs at a time when those could be accepted when the, when the public was hungry for that and the, and the uh, publicity machine wasn't turned off by it. They, they saw, you know, a bunch of young, sexy people and thought, shit, man, here's the next rock and roll era. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I wasn't turned off by him at all because what Ray saw in X was the same thing that he saw, uh, in the doors, which was this tight connection to the audience. Uh, there, there wasn't much division between them and the audience. Um, and, uh, and, and they were part of a scene, you know, with love and, um, I forget who else was part of that scene, but there was a big psychedelic scene in, in LA and. We, there was a big punk rock scene in, in LA as well. Yeah. I guess like, you know, the seeds in, in sky Saxon and that kind sure. of world too. Yeah. Um, 
and they are like they are so interconnected but it's it's interesting the way you kind of put you you phrase it with the doors you know like they couldn't help it what happened to them it's almost the same sort of situation that you guys find yourself in with x where you know you've talked about it before how there was also like open animosity towards you from some of these kids that you know didn't necessarily understand the realities of being an artist a working artist and looked at the band as being a band that was kind of leaving them behind in a way well yeah i mean but but they they thought that early on because we were you know nobody accused the ramones of of being uh of, of selling out for signing with sire records because they made great records and and uh you know uh we did want to change the world hopefully and i I don't think it was until i don't know until it really got going was maybe the dc scene with with fugazi and discord and and that sort of thing i mean Mm -hmm. sst was part of that as well where they were very political and and uh, socialist and and stuff like that and and i i believe in that stuff but it wasn't our priority well you talked about i think last time you were on the show about how you know you go and try and see a band like middle class and have to deal with just a lot of the punks just you know spitting on their heroes type vibe at that point or just sort of you know a lot of aggression where you think that's coming from the fact that it's just like it's not they're opposed to you because you're on a major label at that point they're just opposed to you because you found success type thing (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know probably because we were you know five or seven years older than they were and they <laughs> thought that you know we were has-beens at 28 or something i don't know well that's the thing that has to happen in this punk thing because it, it constantly does but that's why it's always there it like it's self-sustaining in that way that eventually everyone just has to age out Oh, I don't. Yeah. Yes. And no. I mean, it, it, it just changes. We, we, uh, substituted for the distillers on a flogging Molly cruise. And I don't know how much it costs to get on the cruise, but, uh, we just did it about, Oh, two weeks, three weeks ago. And, uh, that was the most body positive cruise <laughs> I can imagine, you know, yeah. <laughs> People were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s wearing their bathing suits, and and there was a lot of love, and nobody gave two fucks about, you know, being young and pretty. And and there were, you know, there were a couple of uh, like mom and uh, mom, dad, and children. Uh, you know, the children were in their teens and stuff like that, and they were having a great time. Oh, no, I meant more that you age out of being the zeitgeist of it, and there's a new oh, yes. group of kids. Yes. Yes. But I think that, but I think that maybe in the world of, um, the, the two, two bands that I know that fit into that would be skating Polly and star crawler. And they seem to be, you know, their audience seems to be a lot more inclusive, Mm -hmm. you know, so so maybe it's, maybe it's not quite as, um, militant, uh, or something, but I don't know. Well, like, you know, you look at bands like Turnstile that just played Coachella this weekend and in the audience of these shows and it's, it's, you know, like, and obviously they're still high energy and, and kids are moshing and going crazy, but like, you know, a lot of the stuff that's talked about in like Jack Grisham's chapter in, in the first book, you don't really see anymore. Like you see the kids looking out for each other a lot more than, yes. than they did at certain points. Yes. Yeah. So what is this Turnstile band? Are they oh, fantastic? Like 
Yeah, they're yeah. great. And actually from DC, Baltimore, once again, and they're uh, a group of kids that have been, well, I think they're not kids anymore. They're kind of in their late twenties, early thirties at this point, but they, uh, they kind of took off this last year and very kinetic, uh, uh-huh. you know, it, it's hard, it's rooted in hardcore and rooted in punk, but it has a lot of other elements in there as well. And it's just, they've I'll really taken off. Oh yeah. Fantastic live band. Absolutely. Okay. Fantastic. Right on. Um, did you know, did you know Gina shock back in Baltimore before she moved out? No, to LA? I, no I didn't, but we immediately bonded when we met in LA <laughs> shared, shared, uh, oh, yeah. hardness, <laughs> shared, uh, sympathy and sympathy and joy because <laughs> we had both gotten out. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, what about Edith, Edith math, uh, Edith Massey? Did you uh, know her or go to a vintage shop? Was that, she had opened it by that point? Yes. Yeah. She opened it just before I left. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, all of John waters crew was available. I mean, that was, I think we might've talked about that, how, you know, Oh, these people are, are celebrities and, but they're, you know, they're reachable. So I could be a celebrity like that. I mean, shit. Well, it's like a more body, body positive Warhol factory going on too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You well, know? yeah. John really loved, loved people who had character. Yeah. But in the very much the same sort of way, like, you know, obviously very storied Warhol's factory and how these people, he made people into celebrities and things like that. But I think mm-hmm. in the same way, John Waters did that with people that, like you're saying, had true character to them. Yes, absolutely. And, and just happened to be, but, but we're, we're, um, open enough and, and, uh, cool enough and vulnerable enough to, to just let it all hang out, you know? Uh, Whereas I think, no offense, but Andy Warhol's whole thing was a was a lot more competitive and and uh, judgmental and 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 had to be, you know, you had to be, you you could get taken down if you didn't do the right thing or be the right, you know, uh, yeah. It seemed, it seemed pretty hard. It seemed like a pretty hard world to, to live in. You know? Yeah. I think the John Waters one definitely seems like a much chiller, more accepting kind of vibe. Yeah. And it was insane. People were, were full on, you know, crazy people. And, and it's like, good. Keep, keep coming to the crazy party. Yes. It was, it was great. It was, you know, yeah. Very accepting. Uh, now that we're talking about movies, I've got to ask you, what are some of your memories of making roadside profits? That is one of my favorite films when I work in the video store. Uh, well, I, I was, I was somewhat unprepared to, to actually carry a movie. So that was hard because I, I, I literally worked every day and of the, whatever, three weeks that we, that we worked that there was not a, a day or a scene that I, I don't think I was in. And, um, but bonding with getting to bond with Adam Horowitz was, was great. Cause, cause he was, um, charming and funny and, and smart. And he, he was somewhat, um, uh, um, <laughs> infuriating because we, we would get all these directions to do things, you know, like take the motorcycle over here and then go over there and then do this and do that and do this and do that. And, and then the director would say, got it. And I'd say, yeah, I think so. And I turned to Adam and he'd say, I'll follow you. And I was like, 
motherfucker, we're doing this together. So, you know, like you gotta, you know, but that was his, he was like in care. He would stay in, in character. Yeah. Know? Cause yeah. that was his character. But uh, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Cause the, the director was also the writer, Abby wool. And um, she just pitched a story and they said, sure. And she said, and I want to be the director. And they said, okay. And, she, and then she walked out. I thought, Oh fuck. <laughs> I hope I can do this. So, uh, yeah, it was great. A, a great, pretty small team. And, but it was still, you know, like somewhere under a, or maybe a half a million dollars. So, I mean, they had like, it was a real movie and, um, yeah, a, a great funny cast of characters. It look looking back on it, it was such a like brief window in time when you could have, movies like that get such wide reach because yes. there wasn't an abundance of it back then. Yeah. Well, it was, it was an, just a, uh, yeah, it was a brief moment where indie movies, uh, sort of like the, the, you know, origin of them, they had a, you know, as long as they had a beginning, a somewhat of a middle and an end. Okay. Go ahead and do your thing and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And because of videos, video rights and international rights and all these sorts of money generating things, you could have a film with a budget, you know, like a a relatively Mm -hmm. speaking small film have like a reasonably good budget to kind of spend and make something that holds up like that still looks impressive today. Yeah, well, they, you know, they they had a great cinematographer who ended up um, going on to to other bigger movies. Uh, His name was Tom Richmond. And he was actually the second cameraman on uh, Salvador. No. Oh. Yeah. And the first was Bob Richardson, who's done like every motherfucking thing in the world. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I just got to do one one other movie before lockdown. We did a remake of DOA, the Edmund O'Brien 1949 film noir movie. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And we uh, we shot it in St. Augustine, Florida. So it has that same sort of old, you know, steamy, uh, creepy vibe. And, uh, and we shot it in, in period. So it's supposed to be 1949. I got to play the, the main guy and we're still looking to, you know, figure out we've gone to some film festivals, got turned down. So now we're going to uh, the other plan a, but that was, that was very rewarding. That's amazing. That's such a fantastic film. I can't wait to see that. Like working in the video store, I saw anything you were in any movie that had yeah. your name on it. I was like, okay, we're going to watch that today. Oh, you watched a lot of, a bunch of shit. Then, you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know to me, it was always the coolest thing and seeing when you pop up in a TV show too, it's yeah. just like, damn, the punks do good every time. <laughs> well, Henry Rollins has certainly been in his share. He has. I've went through his his oeuvre as well during my time yes. in the video store. Yes, indeed. But he wasn't in Roadhouse. No, he was not. I got that. You got that one over him for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, John, I could punish you forever. Uh, but before I let you go, and this is kind of like an awkward shift to happen, but I, I got to ask you about him because he was uh, a huge part of my life and I'm sure a huge part of your life, but uh, Dallas Good. And I just yes. wanted some memories um, of, of meeting them and things like that, because you obviously worked with the Sadies a few times. 
Well, I'm, I'm actually coming up to Toronto uh, for a, a memorial that they're doing. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Um, up. Yeah. It's like next, next week, I think the 24th or 25th, something like that. 25th, I think. Uh, yeah. I love Dallas and, and what a, of course, what a crazy shock it was. Um, but one, one of the greatest fans of, of almost everything, you know, he, he always knew of the, uh, you know, sadomasochistic Japanese punk rock sixties band. And it's like, what? He goes, Oh yeah. Blah, 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 blah. And it would name off like three or four records that this completely obscure, wonderful, but it was great. It was always incredible stuff, uh, you know, and films too. And, and, uh, but like not, not one aggressive, egotistical fucked up bone in his body. Yeah. You know, he, he yeah. was, uh, yeah. Uh, just totally unique and irreplaceable. And, you know, of course, like everybody, I immediately thought of, uh, of the band and Travis and, and his family and because they were so tight knit and, and, uh, you know, so yeah, what a, what a shock. And, uh, I'm, I'm, doing a little, a, a bunch of travel come up, has come up recently, but I said, I've got a, you know, even if it's a one day trip, I'm coming up there. So I got my ticket booked. Uh, we're going to, I think they're going to be some sort of a gig. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to get them to, to play uh, that gun club song that Dallas loved so much mother of earth uh, and, and do that. But yeah, I'll, I was, uh, I was pretty sad for, for some time, you know, um, I still think about him pretty much every day, but, uh, yeah. What a, what a great person. He was, he's just like the, uh, you just like you're saying, like the ultimate fan of, of music and just like someone that, mm -hmm. you know, like would be jamming with yourself and then jamming with career suicide and, and, and jamming with neil young you know like he's just a guy who just like could see the whole picture at once you know and, and didn't yeah didn't get bogged down by any of it yeah <laughs> yeah what a guy what a guy uh that's very sad but uh you know they they made some they they've made some great records and, and i would i would not be surprised if the sadies continue yeah i have no idea what they're gonna do and i i just think whatever whatever happens next like he he lived the life he loved you know and there's so few people that that's true you know yeah like he he you knew this is all he could be doing and and we the day we found out we were playing a show that night and i think normally there would be a conflict on do we cancel do we just not play yeah. and knowing that no that's not what he'd want dallas would want us to go out there and, and just play and smoke weed and and live it up like he would like that's what he'd want us to do every day and it's it's really yeah. easy to kind of go on with that kind of memory in your heart yeah that boy could smoke some weed he could definitely smoke <laughs> some weed I, <laughs> he and i had some wild adventures wild adventures uh, for the yeah. cannabis over the years but yeah yeah well you like, know the, the the funny thing was is he was instrumental in uh in us making that record because we 
we were playing something at, um, I think it was Lee's Palace, and it was a Yep Rock night. And I, I maybe had done the first record on Yep Rock, or, or maybe it was just coming out or something like that. But they flew me up there, and, and uh, I played most of the set on my own, and then they joined me for one or two songs or something like that. Like we, maybe we played Silver Wings or, or some, you know, some country standard. And uh, we all got drunk and, you know, said, oh, man, we should make a record. And then we did. Yeah. Instead of just just saying that we should, <laughs> which is usually what happens. Uh, but uh, yeah, he was instrumental in making that happen. And he yeah. was all all up in the mixing and and choosing. Um, well, we would all put in, you know, suggestions for songs. But uh, yeah, he was he was one of the yeah main components in making that happen. Well, he loved X so much. Like he and well, obviously loved you. But I mean, like just we would no, talk I, about the band for hours you know like it was just a, a well, huge he, important band there, for him. there was a lot of similarities between between his songwriting and ours i mean there was a lot of attention to to detail in the songs and there was always a time and place in you know in the story that the song was was telling um that that record of theirs uh darker shadows dark dark circles what darker it's called? circles Darker circles. There you go. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Darker circles. Absolutely. They, uh, yeah. That was a, um, that was a quantum leap, I think for them and their songwriting. Yeah. They, they were a band that, um, at every turn, uh, I think much like you guys did, like, you know, obviously pushing things forward, but there's a timeless looking back on, on music history and, and a love and acceptance of roots music. And I think for a lot of people yeah. that were into punk, that's what X kind of gave people the ability to do is to kind of love, love the history as much as they love the present. Yeah. Well, and everything they did sounded like the Sadie's. Yeah. And, and they, and you know, hopefully what they will do, they, they won't replace Dallas, but they'll, but they'll find something uh, to do to, to continue that history. Yeah. for sure. Yeah. Never I think asked. we're going to come, I think we're coming up to Toronto with the psych, with the, uh, psychedelic furs too. Oh, wow. X, that's awesome. X is. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think sometime in July, like maybe the middle to the end of July. Hopefully we're not, uh, on the road then, because I think that's the issue now is everyone is, uh, getting back on the road and, and dodging COVID and yeah. <laughs> seeing what that's like. Yeah. It's, now. it's, uh, it's an adjustment a readjustment it was know? weird it was it's weird i just got off tour in england and in england uh the first night we got there we walked backstage and none of the bands backstage had masks on and i'm like oh shit we got to figure this out guys to the band and everyone's like yeah we should figure this out then i walked out on stage and looked out and there's not a mask in the room and i'm like oh i don't think that's going to be an issue backstage anymore it was definitely yeah. every night you know and everyone got covid in the end it's yeah, just the reality of the situation. Oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. The nightmare anyway. But, uh, I, I look forward to seeing you. I look forward to seeing you when you come to Toronto in, in one way or another in the next few times. Yes. And, and I would be remiss in not mentioning that I have a new solo record that's just coming out. I do. I do wraparounds where I will definitely talk a lot about the solo record, but actually one thing I wanted to talk to you about is the approach in 
writing songs coming back after writing the last X record, did it change the way you approach your solo material? Uh, yes. And, and recording because I, uh, let go of the reins uh, or I let go of my ego. And I thought if something didn't work on the X record, then let's just, uh, change the chords and, and rework some of the lyrics and just, you know, make it happen. Uh, whereas before I think I was more rigid and, and would just try to beat it into submission and make it work where it's like, Oh, this isn't fucking working. So let's just, I'll just figure out some new chords and we'll just try it again. Uh, and, and Billy also, Billy zoom also came to the recording with more participation and, and more willing to, uh, to, suggest this and that and well what what if we cut out this you know what if it only did two chords instead of three chords or four there what if we just went back and forth um and, and so in, in in writing material for the fables in a foreign land it, i i got a certain shape to it and a time period that i wanted to deal with and somewhat of a story but um I would be open. I'd be open to like, okay, well, that's not really working. So let's, you know, try a Kevin, Kevin Smith, who played bass on it. It's like, maybe you can try a, a different part. You know, I, this is the part I thought would work, but it's you're, you might have a better one. So you do that and, and just let go of it. <clears throat> so yeah. And same uh, Steve Berlin from Los Lobos helped produce it. And so did Dave way, who I've worked with quite a bit. And, and I, I just let them mostly do it. I did a lot of the arranging before they got there and then listened to them. And, and they both were very um, restrained because they knew that I just wanted to use three instruments. We had a couple of guests, uh, but mostly it was just a folk trio. Everything that you could have, everything we did, you could do in the back room of a bar. We had, you know, all, all the mics were just out there in the air and we didn't use any headphones and we just, it had to be, you had to get it and get it right. <clears throat> we did cut between takes, but, but there was no overdubbing of bum notes and stuff. That must've been very freeing, you know, not just in the way you're approaching the songwriting, but even the way you're approaching the recording of it. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah, you didn't have to battle, um, or, or think about what it's going to, what it's going to sound like. Cause it, it is going to sound like what you just did. Yeah. It some, it was some pressure cause you had to, to do it right. You know, you couldn't fix it. So there, you know, there was, but I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I think you gotta, you gotta get, get it up to, to make it happen. You know, you have to get your energy up and, but not in a, in a nervous sort of way. It has to be, like uh, this relaxed, like get into a zone. But uh, yeah, it was, it was freeing because you didn't, you know, we knew we had five days, but you know, if you get four songs or, you know, five songs in a day, which you can do, you're, you know, you're good. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like playing live, right? Like you don't really get the chance to, you can never really overdub it on stage. No, you can't. And, and, um, the trick is, the trick is, is getting, you know, in touch with your, you know, be, being vulnerable, being, um, 
you know, concentrating, but, but not bearing down on it to, to just let it, to kind of let it go. Mm. You know, so in, in that way, yes, it's freeing. You know that the stakes are pretty high, but you, you've got to get there. You just got to be there, not try to be there. You can't, you yeah. can't like, Oh, if I try if I play harder, it's going to get better. And it's like, no, it just gets way fucking worse. <laughs> then you're, then you're just, and then you start thinking too much and all that bullshit, which that's your, that's the biggest enemy in the recording studio. Well, I guess this makes you present. Like you're saying, like you, you can't, yes. yeah, no, you, you don't have time to think about what's going to happen after you're done it. Right. And, and, you know, the, the other thing about using your logical brain, because you can justify anything. Someone can make an argument and, and talk you into doing something. And if your intuition is telling you differently, you've got to say, no, we're not going to do that because I'm going to re regret it. And we've all done that where we've accepted someone's logical reason for one thing or another. And then two days or two years after you've done it, you're still, you still think, ah, oh, yeah, that part. I knew that that sucked. I knew that I didn't like that then. And I still don't like it now. <laughs> and then you got to deal with reissues coming out all these years later of that record. If there's something. Yeah. On. At, at that point you couldn't, you couldn't care less, but <laughs> yeah. They still haunt me. The old ones uh, still haunt me. Uh, one, one thing I've got to ask you about in Miles Copeland's book, he tells a story about trying to sign X and Billy going in for the meeting and him getting to the end of his pitch and Billy being like, we're not signing with you because this is a CIA op and you're, <laughs> you're a spy. <laughs> I, I don't remember that, but Billy was pretty, um, <laughs> pretty anti-authority you know he, he had some he had some like problems with people in authority but uh, uh you know i mean irs at that point was so unproven and i don't think that they really offered us much yeah well i think i think by that point also it, it might have been kind of a lateral move from slash and not like moving to electra oh i mean after uh while after wild gift yeah Oh, yes, I, I think so. Well, I this has been awesome. Any anytime you want to come on and talk about CIA ops or or <laughs> punk rock, you know, John, the door is always open. Uh, I I'll appreciate that, and I'll take you up on it. And and maybe I'll see you up in Toronto if you're uh, over at that uh, Dallas Good thing. Thank you, John, for coming back on the show. And uh, uh, I, I did see John uh, when he came to Toronto for Dallas's memorial, but I didn't. I, I didn't talk to him. It, was, it feels weird, kind of, you know, connecting, reconnecting with people in that sort of situation. But I did see him, and he did perform uh, Dallas's favorite Gun Club song. So uh, that would have meant a lot to Dallas. Uh, then, and that is that for today's episode. Coming up on the next episode of Turn Out a Punk. Uh, speaking of Toronto, a Toronto music legend, Peaches, is on the show. That's right. Uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff. Uh, the it is a it is a fun conversation with 
a Toronto music legend, a, a, a international music legend, but definitely a Toronto music legend. Someone who changed the game. She changed the game for all of us here in Toronto. And we talk all about it on the next episode. Well, that is it for today's episode. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different races and different nationalities and just knock all that shit out because this this fascist bullshit's got to stop. You know, this is these aren't political issues. These are just basic human rights issues. And people deserve the right to live without fear of violence and hatred. And so get involved in organizations that are doing positive things in this world, affecting change or, you know, lend your time, lend your, your money if you have extra money to people that need it that are are doing some good out there. And, and, and do some good yourself. Get involved. Do something, you know. Uh, this podcast remains uh, a pro-choice podcast, and uh, we definitely respect people's rights in what they choose to do with their reproductive systems. And if you uh, don't, well, who cares? Don't listen to this podcast. Sign your organ owner card because, you know, at some point they're going to come looking for those organs, but you're going to be dead, so you're not going to care. You know, you're not going to care. You just be like, fucking take that shit. Dead weight. Dead weight. I'm looking around. Uh, do something creative for yourself. Make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band. Start a fanzine. You know? Uh, it, it, it'll make your, your uh, you know, enrich your life. Until it eventually drives you solely crazy. But that comes way later. Way later. Just start the creative project first. Uh, I think that's it. I don't think I got anything else more to add. Oh, try meditation. I, I, I do it and it really helps me and I didn't believe in it before and now I do. So maybe it'll work for you. And that is that. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you on the next episode.